Well, good evening, folks. It's just wonderful to be with you once again. This is the bit I always forget to do. <laughs> right. Uh, it's true, you know, no other church has treated me the way you do. Because you've had me for ten, I think, ten visits already, and uh, there's this three series this evening, and there's more coming in July. And um, ever since I retired, no church has ever had me five Sundays in a row. And I was here last Sunday, and the Sunday before, and next Sunday, and so it goes on. So thank you so much for inviting me yet again. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your desire is to bless us, to inform us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to add something to our lives, to our understanding of your word, to our experience of your spirit. We want Jesus to be glorified in our lives and through this preaching and teaching of your word this evening. So, Holy Spirit, we do welcome you and thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose all of us throughout our Christian lives, and even before we were Christians in many cases, understood that the Bible presents us with God, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I've been trying to remember when I first heard about the Holy Spirit as apart from and distinct from the Father and the Son. And I suspect it was a long time probably after that I was already being very much aware of God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Holy Spirit wasn't mentioned so much. And you know, it's a sad fact, and I say sad because it is sad, that some Christians, when you listen to them speaking and even praying and sometimes preaching, you really would believe that they had a new trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Because in some churches, the references to the Holy Spirit are actually few and far between. And that's not the way it should be. You will be familiar with some history of the church. And remember that 100 years ago or so, the Pentecostal movement began. And in the early days, the non-Pentecostal church kept well away from the Pentecostals. They were suspicious of them, they didn't like them, they didn't trust them, they didn't know what they were into with their testimonies about experiences of the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues, prophesying. What? And so down through the years, there was a fairly marked separation for a long time between evangelical Christians who were not Pentecostal and those who were Pentecostals who were focusing very much on the Holy Spirit. And then about 50 years ago, God decided to do something new and began to pour out his Spirit on churches and individuals who were in church groups where they didn't have much interest in the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, they were left with no choice as the Holy Spirit was poured upon them. I remember about 50 years ago a lovely story coming from New Zealand of an occasion in an Anglican church where the bishop had come along to ordain some young men who had been trained for the ministry and as he was no doubt in the habit of doing, he lined them up in a row intending to go down the row and lay hands on them and pray for them one by one. 
And so he got them lined up in the row, and he began at number one, and he laid his hands on the first man, and began to pray for him, and then realised the man wasn't there. Oh, where is he? On the floor. So he went to man number two, and did the same thing with the same results, and went right down the whole line. And every one of these men was on the floor by the end of the bishops praying for them. That shocked them a bit, I imagine. Now Christians have coined a phrase called slain in the spirit for that kind of experience. It's actually not got any real foundation in, in, in scripture, but it's maybe a useful description of what can and does sometimes happen. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes on a person, they are so powerfully impacted that others had literally fall on the ground. And some remain on the carpet for quite a while and very often have some very good experiences as God by his Spirit ministers to them. Anyway, I personally had an experience of the Spirit which changed my life and my ministry back in 1972. My wife, as I think I've told some of you before, had a similar experience the previous year and after coming home from a holiday where the experience happened, uh, she said to me one day, do you think I'm really baptized in the Spirit? I said, yes, I know you are. She said, how do you know I am? <laughs> I said, you used to read the Bible every day. I said, now you're reading just about every hour. <laughs> I said, you're devouring the Word of God. I said, and what is more, you will tell me I'm going into town to do some shopping. And off you go on the underground of the bus and back you come a couple of hours later. And I said, well, where's the shopping? Oh, I didn't do any shopping. I was walking around the streets of Glasgow, praising the Lord and, and, and praying for the city. I said, hmm, that's good. Save me some money. So the experience of the Holy Spirit does affect people in different ways. Now, in Christian life, as in any department of life, really, balance is a very important thing. And in the Christian life, we've got to keep a balance between doctrine teaching what we learn from the Word of God, what we know of the Word of God, and what is the foundation for our whole Christian life and faith, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching. But we've also got to balance with that experience of God's Spirit. So we must be conversant with God's Word and also experiencing God's Spirit. My aunt used to tell a funny story about a school where the school teacher in a certain class at the beginning of the day lined up the children and made them recite one of the creeds. And this was happening as per usual one morning. And the one at the end of the row, the boy or the girl, started off by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty and what the rest of the thing it says about that. And the second one says, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And then there was silence. A little hand went up. A little voice said, please miss, the latter that believes in the Holy Ghost is no here today. <laughs> oh, well, we may laugh. But actually, we're not called as such in Scripture to believe in the Holy Spirit. But we are called to receive him. And that's the key, in a sense, to knowing the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, we're going to begin this evening by looking at a number of Old Testament scriptures to see what the Spirit of God was doing in that far-off time. In the Old Testament, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit is not on the nature of the Spirit, i.e. who he is, 
but on the activity of the Spirit, what he does, and particularly what he does in human beings. It shouldn't surprise us at all to discover that when we open our Bibles at page 1 virtually, the first chapter or the first book of Genesis, we read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was or became formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there we have the Spirit of God actually active, involved, doing something at the point of creation. But the main emphasis throughout the Old Testament, as indeed in the New Testament, is what the Holy Spirit does in equipping people, in enabling people to do what they could not do without him. Ah, let's look at a number of scriptures on that count. In Exodus chapter 31, we're told of the occasion when God first filled somebody with the Holy Spirit. And I find this intriguing and encouraging. Because in the first verse of Exodus 31 we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. So the first man we know was who was filled with the Holy Spirit way back in these early days was not filled with the Spirit so he could pray properly or worship properly or prophesy properly. He was filled with the Holy Spirit to make him a better craftsman. And that, I think, is intriguing. It brings the whole thing right down to earth. It's not something that we find a little hard to figure out because it's in the spiritual area. It's right down to hands and tools and making a good job at work. And if we move over to Exodus chapter 35, we find the sequel to what we just read, because we read that the Lord told Moses something, and now we have Moses telling the people about this certain thing. Because in Exodus 35, we read, Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel and has filled him with the Spirit of God, and he has given both him and Aholiab, the ability to teach others. Oh. So it's not just a craftsman using his mind and his hands. It's now also extended to the use of the mind and the mouth to teach others. And the Spirit of God was given to assist people in doing these very normal things. If we go to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 24, 30, 34, the very last chapter of Deuteronomy, here is what we come across. We find this written there in 34, 9. Now Joshua, who was Moses' successor as leader of God's people, now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. Now I know in most translations the spirit is spelled with a small s, but maybe it should be spelled with a large s, a capital S. Maybe it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
An interesting thing is that here is an example of somebody being filled with the Spirit and their being filled with the Spirit coincided with the laying on of hands on that person. Of course, when we get to the New Testament, we find more about that. The laying on of hands. Because, you see, it's not just identification. The person praying for the other person, identifying with the person being prayed for, touching them with hands. But it also implies impartation. Well, is that really true? We shall see a little later. If we go to the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a kind of sad book because it tells the story of God's people, the Israelites, and it was very much up and down like a yo-yo. They would walk with God for a time, they would obey God for a time, and then they would change direction and get involved in pagan worship, and God would withdraw his protection, and their enemies were giving them a very hard time, sometimes for years and years on end. And there in Judges chapter 3 is an example of that where we read that in verse 10, Judges chapter 3 verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon this man, a man called Othniel, and he became Israel's judge and went to war. You see, the people after eight years of being hammered by their enemies got in touch with God at last, cried out to the Lord, and he raised up for them a deliverer. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know this happened over and over again. Going forward with God, backsliding, going forward, backsliding. But this time, this man who was filled with the Spirit of God and emerged as a leader to lead the people in victory, they had 40 years of peace as a result of that. A good long innings. If we go over to Judges chapter 14, we find there the rather sad story of Samson, known for his quite extraordinary supernatural strength, known for other things as well, unfortunately. But on one occasion, a young lion came roaring towards Samson, this man, and the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Now this man was not a very good man. He was devious and and rather evil in some ways. And yet God blessed him with this extraordinary supernatural power whereby he killed a lion with his bare hands. Later on he had some problems with some people and he was angry with them. And we're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and he went to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 men just like that. Supernatural power at work. It sometimes puzzles me as to why there's often so little evidence of God's supernatural power in the church of today. And yet way back in these days, centuries before Jesus even came, centuries before Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was poured out, people were experiencing amazing supernatural power. Now, If we go back to the book of Numbers, to Moses' time, Numbers chapter 11, we read there a bit of scripture which actually has quite a lot to say about church leadership in the 21st century. Because there we read, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders, I will take of the spirit that is on you, 
and put the Spirit on them, they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. When I was trained to be a pastor, I was trained to operate what is called the one-man ministry. And many churches still operate on that basis, a one-man ministry. One man, like the professional, the expert, trained, set apart, full-time, preaching, teaching, pastoring, etc. But we read the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we find that God is not really into one-man ministries. He is saying to Moses, you're not able to handle this responsibility of leadership on your own. I'm going to give you 70 helpers. And it happened. Because we're told the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Ah, ah. When the Holy Spirit gets hold of a human being, one of the first things that changes is their speech. There's a new dimension, a new quality, a new variety sometimes of speech. And here these 70 elders, when the Spirit of God came upon them spontaneously, they began to prophesy. And of course it comes out in the New Testament again. We must distinguish always between biblical prophecy, the prophecies of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others, and the other prophecy. Biblical prophecy is scripture. It is the very word of God, pure. Whereas the prophecy that existed in these far-off days and still exists in the modern church is imperfect. It's imperfect. It's not scripture. It's valuable. But it is not scripture and must never be thought as being equal to scripture. If we come now to Isaiah chapter 63, we read here a passage where there is a recalling of past days and past experience among God's people. It's a wonderful passage in many ways because the section begins in verse 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, and so on. All the Lord has done for us, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel. This is remembering the past and God's blessings. And then comes the verse describing these old Israelites of long ago, and it says this, Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. They were experiencing the blessing of God and everything was going well. And then for some reason or other, in some way or other, they rebelled. Remember the Billy Graham film, The Heart of the Rebel? And of course it's true to scripture. We are by nature rebels, absolute rebels. Natural man lives in rebellion against God. It's true. And only salvation from sin, only a new life in Jesus can change that. Until we're saved from our sins, we're virtually living in rebellion against God. God may say, I want you to go this way, and they say, no, I'm not going that way, I'm going my way. That's rebellion. So even those who had experienced so much of God's blessing were guilty of rebelling against God and paying the price for doing so by finding that he turned and became their enemy and himself fought against them. Isn't that scary? 
Were you like to think your Heavenly Father might turn against you and fight against you? But you see, God takes our sinning very, very seriously. But the point we're emphasizing is that these old-time Israelites were described as grieving His Holy Spirit. Of course, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you see, is a person, and although he is omnipotent, he is blessed with supernatural divine strength and power, yet he is very, very sensitive. See, if you're one of these thick skin characters, I hope you're not, I'm sure you're not, you're one of these thick-skinned people who's affected by nothing, it seems. Chances are you won't be grieved by anything. But most of us are not like that. And we can be grieved. If we're at all sensitive, we can be grieved. And so it was that they grieved God's Holy Spirit and paid the price. And they saw back to the days when things were different, the days of Moses when they were rescued from bondage in Egypt and ancestors were rescued and they put the question, where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? So there we have an idea of God's Holy Spirit actually among God's people as they were rescued from Egypt and led through the wilderness. And it says like a horse in open country, they didn't stumble, like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord ah let's look at another aspect of the spirit it's all part of equipping to make us better people you remember in Psalm 51 we read of David the psalmist at prayer you remember that he committed a double sin of adultery and murder adultery first and then murder to try and cover it up it took him a while to repent, but eventually he did repent. And part of his prayer is recorded for us in Psalm 51. Cleanse me and I shall be clean, he cries to God. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. He cannot bear the thought of God casting him away from his presence. And then he adds this, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, examples of his equipping people with results such as prophesying. In fact, there's one more that I intended earlier but missed out at that point. It was when Saul was anointed to become king of Israel, the first king. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy. Just like those old elders in Moses' time. You will prophesy. And you'll be changed into a different person. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power and he joined them in prophesying. Yes. Let's move to something else. 
we find the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament foretelling the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Isaiah 42 begins like this. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And these words are applied to Jesus in the Gospels. I will put my spirit on him, and we'll see that when we come to think of the baptism of Jesus. I'll put my spirit in him and he'll bring justice to the nations. That's a tall order. But Jesus can handle it. But the same Jesus who handles bringing justice to the nations handles so tenderly and so gently human beings who feel broken and worthless. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. What lovely balance in the ministry of Jesus. Then we come to the best known perhaps prophecy concerning Jesus, apart from Isaiah 53, the picture of Jesus. But here in Isaiah 61, Isaiah is led to write these words 700 years before Jesus came. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners and so on. And we read that in the synagogue at Nazareth, Jesus opened that passage of scripture and read it because it was describing him exactly. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. There are two more prophetic words in the Old Testament that really apply to the whole people of God. One which applies more directly to the Jewish people, but in Isaiah chapter 36 we read these words, I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Of course, that's one thing the Holy Spirit is constantly doing. When God blesses us with more and more of his spirit, the more he blesses us with his spirit, the more we want to please God. The more we want to do what he commands and not be in any way rebellious against him. But we couldn't leave the Old Testament without taking the most significant prophecy of all, the one that Peter took as his text when he stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost. The prophecy in Joel where about 400 years before Jesus came, the prophet was led to write, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even in my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And then he says, the end result of all this is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and of course the purpose of prophetic gifting is in one realm 
to reach the lost and bring them to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So much for the Old Testament. Let's move now into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels because they repeat in some areas the same things. Uh, they tell the same story. Different writers telling the same story. They're operating together as it were, though they're separate. When we come to John's Gospel, it's a different angle and things altogether. And he wrote much later anyway. So we're really looking at Luke, first of all. And if we go to Luke's Gospel, what do we find? We find at the beginning of Luke that we're again, very quickly, in the realm of the Holy Spirit. God is about to cause an elderly couple to have a child when they were way past childbearing age. Zechariah was a Jewish priest and he was on duty one day in the temple and it was a very rare privilege because there were so many priests they very rarely got the opportunity of serving in this way. But Zechariah, the old man, was in the temple and he had a visitation from the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to give him the name John. He'll be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. He'll be great and so on. And then he says this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. That really was a one-off. It was quite unique to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of birth. And John was destined to be the forerunner of our Lord Jesus, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus to come. And Zechariah could not envisage this business of having a baby, Elizabeth having a baby, when she was way past the age. And Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. I find Gabriel's response quite amusing. I think Gabriel must have smiled or laughed at that point. The old man Gabriel has said, pointing to himself, thinking of his own incapacity, I am an old man, I am an old man. And Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. doesn't matter if you're an old man. I'm the archangel Gabriel. Supernatural powers available. And, because you didn't believe my word, ah, there's a punishment. You won't speak throughout this entire pregnancy, nine months, silence, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. So, in due course, of course, John the Baptist was duly born. When we move over in further in that chapter, we find the same angel Gabriel going to Nazareth and greeting Mary, who was destined to be the mother of our Lord Jesus. And uh, he, he says to her um, you will be with child give birth to a son you will give him the name Jesus he will be great be called the son of the most high the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David he will reign over the house of Jacob forever his kingdom will never end and Mary says how can this be I'm a virgin and the angel answers the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child 
in her old age. So Mary is to become pregnant by the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so it was. And yet there are professing Christians who dare to say, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, they shouldn't call themselves Christians, really, if they don't believe in the virgin birth. Because, you see, our precious Saviour was supernaturally conceived and is totally different in that respect from every other person. So, we have now Mary getting excited at the news she's heard about her relative Elizabeth and off she goes to visit Elizabeth and when she arrives at Elizabeth's home at Zechariah's home when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting the baby leaped in her womb baby John did a little leap in, in, in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit it's all the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit it's wonderful you see supernatural power of God moving from one incident to another and we're not finished because later in that chapter we read uh, no in chapter 2 we read that the day came when this man Simeon who was a very righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Here is a man who is living so close to God that the Holy Spirit talks to him, the Holy Spirit gives him revelation and tells him this amazing thing. You know what, Simeon? You're not going to die until you've seen the Messiah. And then the Holy Spirit one day prompts Simeon to go into the temple. And at the right time and the right day, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and in come the parents of Jesus to do what the custom of the Lord acquired for their baby. And Simeon breaks out in praise, takes the child in his arms and says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What a beautiful story. And all the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see, it is not exceptional to know the Holy Spirit, to experience the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was exceptional in many ways. It was usually for special occasions and special people that the Holy Spirit came upon them. But we live in the age of the Spirit, as we'll see in succeeding Sunday evenings. And it is normal for Christians to experience the Holy Spirit not just to believe it is in their lives, but to experience the Spirit of God. So, we thought about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the baptism of the Lord Jesus? Well, chapter 3 of Luke tells us that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized also. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased the father spoke words of love assurance and approval and you know in the good old days when I was a pastor and used to prepare people for baptism and baptize them I used to say to them now you're not Jesus we know that but although he was unique it's not wrong 
for you to expect something similar to the experience he had when he was baptized. You should be coming to your baptism expecting to hear the voice of your Heavenly Father, speaking words of love, speaking words of assurance, assuring you of your new identity in Jesus, assuring you of his pleasure in you. And like Jesus, you should be expecting some further experience of the Holy Spirit descending upon you. The outcome of that was that we move into chapter 4, and we read Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end he was hungry. I'm sure he was. And the devil tempted him not once, not twice, but three times in succession. The devil's temptations were designed primarily to discourage Jesus from going to the cross, to seek a following for himself, if only he would cooperate with Satan, Satan would assist him, if you please, to get a following for himself without dying on the cross. Jesus would have none of it and sent the devil packing, and rightly so. So, after the temptations, what happens? First of all, he's been anointed with the Spirit at his baptism. And it's described as full of the Spirit, coming in to face temptation from Satan. And then we come into verse 14 of chapter 4. And we're told Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So now he's operating in the power of the Spirit. This is so important. Because you see, we must compare that with what we read in Acts chapter 10, the occasion where Peter is preaching in the home of the Roman soldier Cornelius to a congregation of Gentiles. Ah, in the past the gospel had been taken to Jews and to Samaritans, now it's the turn of the Gentiles. And as Peter preaches in that Roman soldier's home, he says, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him you know there are some things in our Christian life that we have to unlearn because we had wrong ideas and for me this was one of them as a young Christian I sincerely believed the supernatural things done by my Lord Jesus Christ, the miracles he performed and so on, were all due to the fact that he was drawing upon his power as the Son of God, and of course he could do these things. And I was wrong. Horribly wrong. Because the Bible tells a different story. Our Lord Jesus never, never ceased to be the Son of God while he walked this earth in a human body. But he did not draw upon his power as the Son of God for the supernatural things he did. Now this is not theological hair-splitting. This is a vital issue because it's truth that can change our lives and our ministries. You see, if Jesus did the miraculous things he did, the supernatural things he did, 
to his power as God's son there is no way you or I can come anywhere near it and yet Jesus said to his disciples the works that I do you will do also and greater works than these you'll do because I'm going to my father and that seems utterly impossible how can we possibly do greater works than he did but even leaving aside that part of the promise Jesus said the works that I do works not talking about teaching preaching works that I shall do I did you will do also but the minute we realize that Jesus did these supernatural things not in his power as the son of God but because the Holy Spirit was upon him he was anointed with power oh this is a whole eye opener maybe to some of you here this evening the same Holy Spirit who was on the Lord Jesus Christ when he called Lazarus out from that tomb and said Lazarus come on out and Lazarus walked out the same Holy Spirit who enabled Jesus to do that is on you if you're a Christian and on me oh the possibilities are mind boggling you see we have very shallow faith sometimes we think oh there's not much I can do for Jesus not true when the spirit of God comes to us in power it is amazing what a Christian believer can accomplish so we've thought about the birth of the Lord Jesus his baptism and staying in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel we can think a little bit about his ministry because we read that after dealing with Satan's temptations he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside he taught in the synagogues and everyone praised him that was when he took a, a copy of the scriptures from Isaiah and read the Spirit of the Lord is on me the Lord has anointed me and so on and added today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing he was saying to these Jews in that synagogue you know what, that scripture was pointed to me and here I am standing before you. Then what? Well then we're told that he went down to Capernaum, town in Galilee and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message of authority and in the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit he cried out at the top of his voice ha what do you want with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the Holy One of God be quiet Jesus said sternly come out of him and the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him all the people were amazed and said to each other what is this teaching with authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out now you see if we go over to Matthew chapter 12 verse 28 we find something that is not stated in the same terms anywhere else Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28 we're told they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. 
All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But the Pharisees, who hadn't no time for Jesus and detested him and wanted to kill him, the Pharisees heard this, they said, ah, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus pointed out how ridiculous that accusation was, because Beelzebub was another name for Satan. And Jesus pointed out, look, don't talk such rubbish, because that would mean Satan was fighting against Satan, and Satan doesn't do these things. Then Jesus said this, listen. He said, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Many Christians, I suspect, think that what is variously called as deliverance ministry or exorcism is very rarely required and therefore can be largely ignored, a bit like many Christians largely ignore the Holy Spirit. It's a very wrong conclusion. Because this evening as we meet here peacefully and in this gathering and worship and learn of God, there are people walking the streets of Glasgow and other people in various different situations in Glasgow who will never be helped by psychiatry or medicine of any kind because they are affected by an evil spirit or more than one evil spirit. How do evil spirits get access to human beings? In two main ways. One through a traumatic experience. I remember hearing in Govan about a girl, only a young girl, a child, not much more than a child. She saw her father murdered in the Govan Road. If anything is a traumatic experience, that was. And the chances are that that poor girl, at that point in time, would be grabbed, as it were, by an evil spirit who would remain with her unless and until dislodged. The other way in which an evil spirit get access, gets access to a human being is through perpetual sin of the same sort. Somebody who sins habitually in the same area of life, really sins habitually, on and on and on and on, they almost invariably end up being controlled by an evil spirit. You see, sadly, many of the drug addicts, and we're dealing with them in KBC, Kirk and Telegraph Baptist Church, many of these guys need deliverance because the whole, whole, an evil spirit has got hold of them. And it's not just drugs that are messing them up, it's an evil spirit that's messing them up. I was a chaplain for many years in the Southern General, and during a good part of that time, I was responsible for the psychiatric unit. And I met people in that psychiatric unit who would never be cured by psychiatry. I remember meeting one woman who was there for some time, and I met her husband. And he was so concerned about his wife because nothing the psychiatrist would do or prescribe seemed to make any difference to her. And he was alarmed and distressed. I remember saying to him, well, I've got good news for you. I think I know what's wrong with your wife. And it's not medicine she needs. It's not psychiatry she needs. I have a friend 
We will pray for her if you are willing that I should arrange for your wife to be taken to this friend for prayer. This friend has a very powerful anointing of ministry to the, of deliverance. Because your wife's life is being messed up by an evil spirit. Oh, a man was so relieved to know that something could be done for his wife. And his wife was taken in due course to this lady with this powerful ministry of deliverance. And she was set free. Psychiatry couldn't do that. But Jesus did. And Jesus did it through a human being, you see. And someday I'll tell you the story of the most amazing conversion I ever witnessed. And it occurred in the context of deliverance. A woman who had been 40 years in spiritism. I'm very not going into the details, or we'll be here all night. But there she was. And one day, one day, a few words were spoken by a brother in Christ under the anointing of the Spirit. And the evil spirit just fled, just like that. And she was saved. She came to the Lord, gloriously. Hallelujah. So, now, I really meant to ask Jim about this before the meeting, but I'm kind of in full flight, as you may suspect. But uh, uh, we can either stop now, or we can go a little further. What do you think? Continue, okay, okay. It'll be useful to continue because I want us to look at one or two passages in John's Gospel and then we'll be able to move into Acts uh, where we'll read a lot more about the Holy Spirit next, next week. So moving into John's Gospel, obviously we want to consider what John records in chapter 3 about being born again. Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, a very senior leader in Jewish circles, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God because nobody could perform the miracles you do except God were with him. He was kind of flattering Jesus in a way by saying that. But Jesus cut him short if he was flattering him, I don't know or not. But anyway, Jesus just cut in on Nicodemus and said, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you, and the you in verse 7 is plural. In other words, everybody who wants to be saved must be born again. It's very unfortunate that when evangelistic crusades take place, Billy Graham or whoever else, Christians from different denominations and groups come together to support the crusade and be part of it. And therefore, normally... A crusade evangelist will never preach on baptism because he knows in the audience there and among the people in the Kelvin Hall or else wherever they are, Celtic Park, there are lots of people who are sincere Christians who believe that baptism is a sprinkling of infants. And he knows if he starts preaching about believers' baptism, there will be a few backs go up. So he doesn't preach on baptism. So what's he doing? He's preaching a slightly emaciated gospel. Hmm. And that is a weakness in some evangelism. People are only told about Jesus. Not about baptism, not about the Holy Spirit, just about Jesus. Are they converted? Aha. Well, you see, 
if we are going to be fairly strict in our interpretation of what Jesus says here, it seems to me that Jesus is saying to be properly converted as a Christian, to be properly saved from your sin and be truly born again, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, only he can bring it to pass, only he can touch my dead spirit and make it live. But there's water meant to be involved in this as well. Oh, oh. And I'm sad to say that in Baptist circles generally, water baptism is perceived as a very special opportunity of getting all your family and friends together so that they hear about your conversion and hopefully some of them become believers. That's a side effect of baptism. It's not the main purpose of it. And we'll look at this again in Acts when we get into Acts. This is the main purpose of baptism that is the blessing of the person who is being baptized. Anything else is a, is a bonus. The main purpose of baptism is to assist the person who is being baptized to realize what's happened to them and to enter into the fullness of it in the power of the Spirit. Anyway, Jesus is teaching about being born again. And he's saying it's two dimensions he mentions. Being born of the Spirit and of water. Well, we'll come back to that in the future. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the agent. He is the person who makes it happen. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as the chief executive officer, the CEO of the Godhead. He is the one who gets things done. He is the one who imparts life. Oh yes. So we have our new birth. Born from above. The same Greek word can mean again or from above. Born from above. Born again. Of the spirit and water. Our new birth. Go over to chapter 7 of John's Gospel. And we can say a little bit about our new life. Because you see there. Jesus says. If a man is thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John, who is writing about this, adds, By this Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit in power, New Testament power, apart from being on Jesus himself, the Spirit in New Testament power available to all believers did not come to earth until Jesus had gone back to heaven. We'll come to that in Acts chapter 2. But here you see Jesus is talking about our being aware of spiritual thirst and perhaps we're aware to some extent of spiritual thirst before we become Christians. Maybe not so much aware of that until we're being saved. And then once we come to know the Lord, once we've got this new life in Jesus, we should have and should develop a healthy spiritual appetite, hunger and thirst. Hungering and thirsting for what God wants to add to our life, to build into our life. And Jesus says, if a man is thirsty spiritually, let him come to me and drink. And he says, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. 
Wow. In other words, you can know the Spirit in such measure, the Holy Spirit in such measure, that there isn't only enough for you, for your life, there's an overflow from your life into the lives of those around. And see, hopefully that is happening right in this room this evening. An overflow. I hope we're getting some of the overflow hmm. of the Holy Spirit at work in one and touching another. Go back for a minute to chapter 4. Jesus at the, uh, the woman at the well. Remember Jesus comes to the well and for, uh, this Samaritan woman comes to the well rather. He's already there and she, she's amazed because Jews don't usually associate with Samaritans. They usually hate each other and not a men talk to women in this kind of context and he asks the woman for a drink. And she said, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Oh, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with. You haven't got a bucket and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And so on. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water, this well, well water, be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course, that spring of water becomes a river pouring out from the individual's life to touch and bless others. It is in chapters 14 to 16 of John's Gospel that we have this wonderful passage of teaching on the Holy Spirit given by our Lord Jesus to the disciples before he leaves them. And here are different names of the Holy Spirit used and indications of what he is going to do. Uh, I'm not going into great detail here otherwise it will take too long. But in chapter 14 we find the beginnings of Jesus telling these men um, because I'm going away I'm not going to leave you orphans. He actually says that. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'll come to you. But he was going to come to them via the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And one of the names for the Holy Spirit that we find in these chapters is the word paraclete. Now, the King James Version of the Bible translated paraclete. Actually, it isn't the translation. It is what we call a transliteration. Because the Greek word parakletos, just at the ending, tidied up a little bit for the English language, and it became paraclete. And that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. New NIV says uh, counselor. Um, other versions say comforter, so on. Come on, I think comforter is, is a King James version. And of course he's called the Spirit of Truth, because he is absolutely true just as Jesus says I'm the truth so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and he will do certain things just notice in passing that in the beginning of this teaching on the Holy Spirit chapter 14 of John verse 15 he says if you love me you'll obey what I command I'll ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor, comforter, paraclete to be with you forever the spirit of truth the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now listen, these men have been with Jesus for three years. And he says to these men, I'm going to send you this new blessing, 
of the Spirit of Truth, the Paraclete, the Counselor. And then he says, you know him. You know him. They already had encountered him. Hmm. For he lives with you and will be in you. He couldn't be in the disciples. The laughter Jesus went back to heaven. But he was already with them. That's exceptional for that particular point in time. Anyway, the three things to sum up. The three things that the Holy Spirit is described here as doing. Uh, it's a sermon in itself, but I'll spare you that tonight. Um, he will teach. He will instruct the church. Jesus says that in John 14:26, The Counselor, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. You see, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. That's why, when I remember, I like to pray for the Holy Spirit's help before I start preaching or teaching the Word of God. Because I am only a secondary teacher. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. If, I, if, only, if you're only taught by me, you won't learn much. But if you're taught by the Holy Spirit, oh, it's different. He instructs the church. When we open our Bibles at home to read them, don't just open the Bible and start reading. Say, Holy Spirit, please teach me. Teach me. Show me what this passage means. I want to hear from you. Teach me. And I think it's wonderful that John wrote and the Holy Spirit John records rather what Jesus said, the second part of what he said here, because Jesus said the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I have said to you. Why is that so wonderful? Because John's Gospel was written years and years after the other Gospels. Years and years after Jesus had spoken the actual words. And when old John began to write his version of the Gospel, how could he possibly remember all that Jesus said? Ah, the Holy Spirit was reminding him. Good news for those of us whose memory is not as good as it used to be, huh? The Holy Spirit will remind you where you left the glasses. <laughs> oh yes, we've all experienced some of that, I think. Anyway, basically he will instruct the church, and he is the teacher. And you see, the trouble is, if preachers get up and talk, and don't ask the Holy Spirit to enable them and to speak through them, the church is the loser, because the teaching is just not of the same quality, the same power, the same order as it could have been if the Holy Spirit had been more directly involved in it. So number one, he instructs the church. Number two, he bears witness to Jesus and glorifies Jesus. He bears witness to Jesus and glorifies Jesus. The end of chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, but you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. This is an encouraging verse. You know why? Because we're called to be witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to live a life and exemplify a lifestyle that makes people want to know Jesus. We're meant to be identified as Jesus people. And sometimes Christians feel that's a pressure. You mean to say I've got to live every day of the week just like Jesus? Just I've got to be as like Jesus as possible every day of the week? Yes, you have. But, listen, there's no pressure. How come? Because Jesus said, the principal witness born to me is going to be born by the Holy Spirit. You've just got to add your wee bit. Oh, I like that. 
the spirit of truth he will testify about me says Jesus but you also must testify we're just supporting what the Holy Spirit is already in the business of doing and that takes the pressure off and he will glorify Jesus that's part of the same thing because in chapter 16 he, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you as he teaches the believers he's at the same time glorifying Jesus all that belongs to the Father said Jesus is mine that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you and in the process he's glorifying Jesus the Holy Spirit never points to himself he's always pointing to Jesus and the third thing here is he will convict the world ah chapter 16 verse 5 I'm going to him who sent me yet none of you asked me where are you going because I've said these things you're filled with grief but I tell you the truth if it's for your good that I'm going away unless I go away the counsellor will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you and when he comes he doesn't repeat the words to you but that's inferred I think when he comes to the church he will convict the world oh he does convict the world apart from us of course when he comes to you he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because men don't believe in me if you ask somebody even a Christian what is the greatest sin you can commit what kind of answer do you expect well some would say adultery some would say murder they're awful sins but they're not the greatest Jesus is saying the greatest sin of all is to not believe in me to hear about Jesus and say no thank you that Jesus labels as the greatest sin of all and the Holy Spirit is in the business of convicting people if somebody is hearing about Jesus and being encouraged to come to Jesus and become a Christian and say oh I don't want to hear that stuff the Holy Spirit may well go into action and say do you realize what you're doing you're committing a terrible sin because nobody ever did for you what Jesus has done for you and the world is all mixed up in regard to righteousness because you see every other religion except the Christian faith it's all DIY DIY, do it yourself man made homemade righteousness there is no such thing there is no such thing sadly all those who are trapped in other religions this evening they're all trapped in a big dark hole there's no, there's no chance of righteousness because it has to come from God in knowing Jesus Jesus is our righteousness if we don't get him we don't get righteousness and then the Holy Spirit is also in the business of convicting people of judgment Ah, people say don't talk to me about judgment that's rubbish is it? the Bible speaks about judgment judgment for the Christian and also judgment for the world for the unbelievers and the Holy Spirit sometimes has to remind people listen, don't play tricks with God one day you're going to have to face a judgment let me finish with an illustration that word paraclete I told you already it's pure Greek para alongside kletos called paraclete called alongside and I heard many, many years ago a lovely story that illustrates this so well. A boy 
was trying to ride his bike. But he wasn't on the street, and he wasn't on the pavement. He was on the beach. And he was trying to push this bike through soft sand. And you can guess what was happening. He was making no headway whatsoever. His wheels were just sinking into the soft sand because he hadn't the strength to make them do anything else. So he called Dad. And Dad comes toddling over. And Dad puts one hand on the handlebar and the other hand on the saddle of the bike and begins to walk, 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 walk. Hey, hey, what's happening? We're going places now because the paraclete has come. Oh yes, he was called alongside and he's making a big difference. And that's the saviour we have and that's the saviour we have who comes also in the Holy Spirit. Called alongside. Oh, never left to our own devices. Never relying on our own resources takes the pressure off, doesn't it? To know that the paraclete is with every believer all of the time. The older I get, the more I pray, Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. He always does. Let's pray. Father, we come to say thank you. That your word is truth in a word, world full of lies. We have in your holy scriptures truth on which we can totally rely. We thank you that your son is the truth as well as the way and the life. And your Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The paraclete. Oh Father forgive us wherein we have not made, made the most of the help you make available to us. Forgive us wherein we have not taken the trouble to study your word more carefully and discover just who the Holy Spirit is and how much he can be to us and do for us. You heard us sing, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. And we ask, Father, that you will remind us day after day to welcome the help of your Holy Spirit not just in spiritual things though they are so important but also in ordinary things just like Bezalel knew the help of your Spirit to make him a better craftsman thank you for this evening Father thank you for your love for us thank you that sometimes slowly but certainly surely you are working out your great purpose for our small lives. Save us from thinking less of ourselves than we ought to think. Help us to think in terms of what you say we are and what you say we can have in knowing Jesus, in knowing the Holy Spirit and in knowing you, our wonderful Abba. Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.